Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. John Rossman helped transform Amazon.com's entire business. As you'll hear in this episode, after the dot-com bubble burst, Amazon delved into a new business line that allowed third parties to do business off of Amazon's platform and to make use of Amazon's many competencies. This is now extremely lucrative for Amazon, and in some cases more lucrative than Amazon just selling you something itself. In this episode, John describes his role in developing the Amazon third-party marketplace, and also gives us his perspective on what makes Amazon successful. If you want to go deeper into Amazon as a company, you're in luck, because as we discuss, John has written a book about Amazon called The Amazon Way, 14 Leadership Lessons Behind the World's Most Disruptive Company. There is a link to buy the book in the show notes. And if you want to understand Amazon on a deeper level, I highly encourage you to check it out. John Rossman, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Hey, Brian. Thanks for having me so much. Uh, So... You know, I always like to start off uh, with a little bit of background. So it looks like your the first half of your career was pretty varied, but generally you were working as a, a consultant for people like Accenture, Arthur Anderson, that sort of thing. That's right, absolutely. So did that give you um, exposure and experience with lots of different industries and markets? I did. I worked in manufacturing. I worked in a lot of uh, gas and utility companies. I did a bunch of insurance work. And But the thing that's always held my interest has been integration, whether that's been you know process integration, data integration, systems integration. That's been um, in, in running kind of complex technology-driven change. So those have been the things that have been common throughout my entire career. So was... Uh... Commerce Route, was that your first sort of uh, tech company that you worked with or tech project that you worked that with? That was. Yeah, exactly. So Commerce Route was a um, um, startup company started in 99, 98, um, something like that. And I joined in early 2000 to run professional service for, professional services forum. And it was... Um, and interesting, the founders were um, ex-Microsoft guys, and we built a workflow engine and a easy um, interface to be able to integrate disparate data sources between each other. And what we eventually ended up doing was putting all this technology onto a, uh, uh, an appliance um, that you could simply plug into a stack of servers and everything was managed through a web browser, which was pretty uh, creative in 2000, 2001 to do that. And um, we had a lot of fun doing it. I think we hit the market a little late and a little uh, bad timing relative to the capital markets and IT spending. But um, yeah, that was that was a lot of fun. Just I basically drove kind of clients and solutions for Commerce Web. So because I'm interested in how this 
maybe led you towards Amazon. Were these tools that allowed people to to do e-commerce and things like that? Yeah, either e-commerce or B two B, B two B, and sometimes just internal app to app um, integration. And so a lot of the use cases were um, EDI and flat file and some early XML um, scenarios and um, business partner um, uh, flow and change. We did quite a bit of work with a high-tech industry standard called RosettaNet and built a RosettaNet um, kind of library that um, made it relative. The whole goal was to be able to lower what the cost of what it took to do a an integration so dramatically lower the cost of doing integration was the goal and so it, was, it allowed kind of a business analyst a tech savvy business analyst to be able to do their own lightweight um, integrations so what leads you to amazon i think i read um that a couple friends maybe suggested that that you apply to amazon yeah, so um, a guy by the name of Jason Child um, what had been a colleague of mine at Arthur Anderson. He had been an audit manager at Arthur Anderson. I was in the consulting practice. We worked together on a couple of clients, and I was out of the Portland uh, practice for Arthur Anderson. I moved to Seattle for Commerce Route. Jason was in Seattle, and as it became apparent kind of what the outcome was going to be for Commerce Route, and I started thinking ahead – I kept in touch with Jason and he was the one who was like, Oh, we've got something pretty interesting that we're thinking about that could take a uh, good advantage of, you know, your background. And so I started talking to Amazon about what became the merchant set or the third party business. So this is uh, April of 2002. I, I read in your book um, that <laughs> The interview process was fairly intensive. You want to share the story of, of what that's like to get hired at Amazon? Well, I, I don't think everybody's path is like mine and everything. And so I started, you know, I, I guess I joined in the April time frame in 2002. I started talking with them several months before. I think I did something like 23 different interviews. And what was what was really cool was I was really helping to build the strategy for what became the Merchants App program kind of through those interviews. And by the end of it, I kind of knew all more of the disparate pieces and where we were at starting out than I think anybody else did at Amazon. And so um, that was my interviewing process was really a strategy development process. Um, before we do get into the, what what you do, the Merchants App program, um, so, but again, this is 2002. So this is after the bubbles burst. Um, this is maybe not too long after Amazon maybe <laughs> flirts with, uh, uh, going under. So I'm curious, what was the, what was the mood of the company when, when you joined it? Well, I think the best way to describe it was it was literally the mantra of, the, of, of like the headcount planning was we are keeping headcount flat. And so I remember having to, um, you know, convince and, and argue to get a couple of people allocated for account management for, you know, what was kind of a big bet for the enterprise. And the discussion was, well, if we, you know, give you two people, you know, where's that headcount going to come from? Because we are keeping headcount flat versus, you know, today it's just hiring by the hundreds at Amazon, right? And so it was a very 
a very headcount and cost conscientious environment at Amazon. But I think that they truly were kind of through, um, you know, the worst of it. And the stock had recovered a little bit at, at that point. Um, and the model was proving out and we were kind of getting on to the next big thing, which was this third party selling strategy. Right. So as you, as you've described, um, you're brought on to, to launch what's called merchants at, but you're also sort of formulating it. You're sort of selling yourself into this program and, and selling the program as well. So describe what, uh, merchant, Merchants app was designed to do and, and the origins of this idea. Yeah, so Amazon had had a couple of other previous um, attempts at ha- allowing third parties to sell to customers. Um, they had attempted an, an auctions um, business, which you've discussed um, at length, and they also had a business called Z Shops. And they had allowed for used books to be sell, sold um, at Amazon. But all of them had significant limitations, both customer experience limitations as well as kind of selling tool uh, limitations. Um, for example, the, it was a, uh, for the Z Shops, it was a separate checkout pipeline for a customer. So if you were buying something from Z Shops and also buying something from Amazon, you actually had to check out twice. Um, and sellers had very limited ability to create new detail pages. They had very limited promotional capability. And so the vision that we had was that, you know, we wanted to, um, give third party sellers essentially the same tools and the same capabilities as Amazon, the retailer had. And also at that point, I think the the key strategic move was at that point, Amazon was selling in books, music, and video. And we were using this third-party selling strategy as a way to rapidly expand the number of categories that Amazon was going to sell um, at the website. And at that point, we positioned it as, you know, Amazon would be simply the marketplace um, maker and owner, and we wouldn't uh, go into these categories. But obviously, over time, Amazon has aggressively gone into uh, being a retailer in these categories, as well as a, actually a, a brand maker in a lot of these categories. So initially, it's sort of a quick and dirty way to expand beyond music and movies and books into things like, I don't know, sporting goods, uh, health and beauty, you know, apparel, that sort of thing. That, that's exactly right. The first one we started off with was apparel. Then we went into sporting goods. Then we went into health. And then we, I think we launched, you know, 14 categories over uh, two years. So are, you're, you're working with these individual brands and these individual retailers, and then you're offering them not only your sales platform, but also uh, use of your fulfillment centers and your warehouses or, or not? How, what, what do you, what do you launch these? Uh, yeah. What do you offer the for, partners? For, yeah, for the first few years, what we're offering customers is access to customers and leveraging the, the Amazon customer base to sell their products directly to. The FBA or fulfillment by Amazon um, capability came up a couple of years later. Um, so it kind of went, we launched 
Merchantsat mm-hmm. in late 2002. Then Prime launched sometime, I want to say, in 2003 or 2004. And then um, the FBA program started in, I would guess, 2005. And all of it took a few years before it really gathered steam. But I think it really was those three together, Merchantsat, Prime, and FBA, those three together are what really uh, drove the juggernaut of what today is the third-party business. So often when I've read about, you know, Amazon's third-party platform, that it was always it's always described as, well, they had the, the infrastructure anyway, they had the warehouses, so why not make use of this? But you're saying that at least at the very beginning, the merchants at, they're still using their own systems. They're simply getting access to Amazon customers. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah, there was no ability to, other than Toys R Us, um, nobody else had access to leveraging Amazon's fulfillment centers and fulfillment capabilities. Um, was was Toys R Us the first? Uh, as far as I know, okay. uh, Toys R Us was the first. That's right. But then you expand to things like uh, Target and Sears and Marks and Spencer and, and things like that. Um, as well as hundreds of thousands of other third parties being able to leverage Amazon's fulfillment capability. Okay, well, let's, let's, get, yeah, let's get into that, um, the fact that it can be basically anybody. So um, you had to come up with essentially an automated process if this is going to work, if you're going to have you know, thousands and then millions of, of, of partners at, in this program. So um, were you involved in, in setting up the, that, that whole system? Well, for the merchants at platform, mm-hmm. I absolutely was. I was I was really kind of the owner of that. And you know, selling at Amazon was is very different. Was very different than selling at eBay, right? eBay at at this time was the absolute marketplace leader. But you know, selling there and the customer experience was was pretty much like a flea market, right? Like if you went and searched for a you know. A Canon Super SuperShot S40 camera, there could be 10 to 20 different pages of listings. And as a customer, you would have to figure out, well, exactly what's the difference? What am I getting on each one? At Amazon, we had one of the concepts we had was that um, we wanted this concept called item authority. And item authority was the notion that regardless of who's selling it, there is one thing to be defined, right? There is a skew to be defined. And so it was our job to reconcile all these different parties who might be contributing or trying to establish the item, reconcile it down to one item, and then let other people make offers against it so multiple people could sell it. And that was that was both a very different customer experience, but it also had a very different seller obligation and complexity in order to be able to sell at Amazon. And right. That's just one example of kind of how we how we made integration very different at Amazon. Well, and and that points to you're also providing for these partners um, lots of sales data because if they're going to if they're going to have to compete in this one channel on things like price, then they have to be able to you know know how the market is behaving, know how customers are behaving. So you're also creating systems to give them that sort of data as well. Well, really, only just on their own on their own sales. Now okay. there are some some, tool, some third party tools available now that help give um, indicators of, you know, the competitive nature and the velocity of items being sold at Amazon to help you both 
you know, do selection planning and pricing um, and things like that. But Amazon's never given more than just the data that belongs to you to third-party sellers. Interesting. Um, so I, I, you mentioned eBay, and so I think it's striking because uh, I don't know if you heard the, the chapters on eBay, but when eBay first comes around, Amazon seemingly is fearful that maybe eBay has a better model. But what you were able to do essentially is prove that wrong and basically uh, overcome eBay by, by proving that um, your your method for third-party sales uh, ends up being superior for, for the customer and thus uh, probably more successful. That's right. Um Ultimately, our goal was around, you know, customer centricity and customer trust. And we wanted a customer to be able to trust buying from a third party at Amazon as much as they trusted buying from Amazon, the retailer. And so because of that, we put all types of operational um, requirements and hooks into, into the integration so that we knew exactly what was going on between the third party and the customer. We drove all of the customer contact through Amazon versus eBay kind of went the other way. It's like, Hey, you guys go figure it out. You're, you know, we really take very low level of responsibility. We gave the A to Z guarantee from the very get go to these transactions and really stood behind it. And so I think those were some of the fundamental differences between how Amazon attacked it versus eBay. And as you note over time, I think the, the Amazon, the high trust and high delivery commitments, um, really want out for customers. How much functionally do you think the customer really knows they're not just buying from Amazon? I, I, I'm guessing that a vast majority don't really get um, that they are buying from somebody else other than the Amazon. And that that's, I think, you know, we made it, we messaged it, messaged it abundantly, but I think at the end of the day, we also kind of hit it um, from an experience standpoint and from an integration standpoint. So, for example, when you order multiple items, you get one order confirmation email, right? And so, again, we wanted it to just be as much as a seamless experience in buying from multiple sellers and from buying from Amazon uh, for a customer and to be trusted. I read uh, multiple articles that claim that on a lot of items, Amazon actually, through their third-party system actually makes more money through the third-party sales than when they when they sell that same item themselves. Would, it, 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 based on uh, your experience, do you, you think that's accurate? I, I, I do. I mean, when you think about kind of the all-in costs of both having to, you know, buy it, plan it, you know, carry the inventory and all of that versus just taking, uh, you know, depending upon the category, eight to 15% rev share off the transaction and everything. Like I think the money, the, the business is, is very profitable and on a lot of items more profitable to do in a marketplace model than to be the retailer record. So uh, with the caveat that of course it's, you haven't been there for several years in your estimation, you would, say that the, the third-party sales ends up being a huge chunk of, of what Amazon does at retail? It, well, I, I think I've seen the estimate that, you know, Merchants at is well over 50% of all units shipped and sold at Amazon. And a lot of analysts have commented that it's been the vast majority of the retail profit that's been generated from, from the retail business for Amazon. 
Wow, so that's that's quite a revolution you bring you bring to uh, bring to Amazon. Um, how many how many years are you with Amazon? Uh, just about four years. Mm-hmm. Um, why'd you move on from there? You know, a lot of different reasons, but at the end of the day, I was um, running this enterprise services business where we ran other large retailers, e-commerce infrastructure. I had the responsibility for um, Target and the NBA and Toys R Us and Marks and Spencer. And my family was young at the time, and I just didn't want to be running a, a national and international business at the time. Well, I I have to ask because you know it was in the news so much a year ago or, or more. Um, this idea of that Amazon's a really tough place to work and that that burnout is really really common. Just based on your own experience, um, how do you feel about that impression that people have that man it's it, it, it chews people up and sometimes spits them out? Yeah. So um, there's a couple of different points made in that New York Times article. And I think one is Amazon is a demanding place to work. And they say that, then they shouldn't make any apology for it. But what that brings with it is a lot of ownership and accountability and control to be able to really get things done uh, within that environment. And it's not for everybody. And so um, it is a demanding place to work. You know, I found it to be kind of one of those always on uh, situations and everything. And that wasn't, um, I I thought it was, was, was great because you could actually get um, really cool things done in pretty efficient manner. And I, I never saw any of the, kind of abusive um, scenarios that, that were, you know, described in that New York Times article or anything like that. So, so since Amazon, um, essentially, you, you continue to, to do this for a living, helping companies uh, drive process changes like, like you did with uh, the Merchants at program. Um, but you also have written a book about the lessons that you learned at Amazon uh, called The Amazon Way, uh, 14 Leadership Lessons Behind the World's Most Disruptive Company. Um, so I want to talk a bit about that. But first, how how did the idea for doing a book about what, your, what you learned at Amazon come about? Yeah, so when I left uh, Amazon, I went to work for a firm called Alvarez and Marcel, and I helped start the Western region for the consulting practice. And as I got into my client work, I just saw the impact of the little stories and anecdotes um, of that we used at Amazon in helping my clients make change. And I had one client in particular at the Gates Foundation, who, and he just started talking to me about like, man, you know, you'd really do a nice job at taking all those anecdotes. And so um, I just started kind of um, breaking out, like what were all those different strategies and techniques that we, we used. And I decided like, okay, I, I think I'll write a book around this. And the real magic moment was when I figured out like, Oh, let's tell all those different stories through the framework or through the lens of the 14 leadership principles. And then it just told a really great story and it was a pretty easy book to write. Because as you say, these 14 leadership principles at Amazon, um, they're not just, you know, some sort of empty corporate rah-rah speak. Like everyone knows these lessons and, and, and is actually, it's a measure. It's, it's, it's a measure of people's success or failure at the company, how well they can, um, live up to these 14 different uh, lessons. 
That, that's right. When I was there, they weren't actually written down. They weren't codified, but you heard about them and you saw them being used in, in meetings and hiring evaluation and, and, you know, debating how we go about something or the trade-offs of one approach versus the other uh, and everything. And then at some point they became codified and they, they truly are active leadership principles and used um, throughout the company. And I think that's one of the key ways that they scale um, mentality and scale leadership is through these leadership principles at Amazon. They're used by every team within the organization. I wanted to uh, pick out a couple of points that I found interesting, especially in terms of just thinking of Amazon as a company and how it behaves. Um, for for instance, how Amazon thinks about creating platforms that it's it's business mm -hmm. is, is is a series of platforms so first of all explain how amazon thinks about that and then i have a couple questions about it sure so um platforms in amazon's mind is where you take a core capability you figure out how to make it self-service and um um scalable for internal use, but then you also ask yourself, how would I make this useful for other people to leverage this capability? And you build tools and APIs, so methods of integration, so that others can leverage that capability. And when I was at Amazon, we, we started to get really clear on this notion of, oh, Amazon is really two types of companies. We're a retailer and we're a platform business. And the retailer is the big client for that platform business, but certainly not the only client for that platform business. And so Merchants At is an example of a platform business where we expose the capabilities of Amazon, let others ride on those rails. We try to do it in a very self-service, scalable manner. And that's what um, a platform business means at Amazon. Right, because I, I just want to hit on this a little bit because I feel like this is important. It's a, it's a subtle distinction, but you know, the classic we classically think of you know the platform strategy as you create an ecosystem and then you allow, you know, obviously in the software case, independent developers to come in and play in your ecosystem. And then you, you, uh, achieve, um, you know, um, success based on the scale of your platform and things like that. But that's the subtle difference is, is that what you're saying is that Amazon takes its own skill sets and tool sets and then puts them, finds a way that, that they're successful. And then, puts them out for others to use. So it's sort of like the stuff, it, but it's not like a marketplace where, you know, you have to pay a toll. It's more you're, you're leveraging the, the skill sets that Amazon is good at, and then you're allowing others to do whatever they want with them. That's right. I mean, AWS, so the Amazon Web Services business, really came from this place of how do we create great infrastructure for the Amazon developers? And they force themselves to have external developer make it available for external developers because that would make it just better for the internal Amazon users for that technology. And what they found was an unbelievable business, right? And so they just scaled that uh, to the nth degree. But it really came from the notion of, hey, we got to build tools that are going to allow Amazon, the retailer, to scale its uh, its infrastructure. So obviously AWS is is possibly the most famous example of this, but what are some other examples um, of platforms at Amazon, even some that maybe didn't turn out to be successful? Yeah, so uh, there's, there's a platform called Mechanical Turk, which is a tool that allows you to 
leverage a worldwide workforce for you know small incremental pieces of work to be done. Um, there's Create Space, which is where I've published this book, is a platform for allowing um, authors to to publish um, to publish books and Kindle books um, easily. The Merchants App platform. Uh, is another good example. FBA fulfillment by Amazon is a classic uh, platform where they've taken Amazon's internal fulfillment capability and fulfillment network, turned it inside out and allow others through self-service tools and through APIs to leverage that fulfillment networking capability. Uh, one chapter that and, 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 and my guess is yeah. my guess is is that you are you'll see a lot of new platform businesses from Amazon. I think especially in, you know, they're launching uh, Prime Air, which is both the, the airplane transport uh, capability as well as the drone capability. And I think on the, on the airline capability, at some point you'll see Amazon allow others to leverage that capacity uh, to um, transport goods and items. Oh, right. <laughs> Hadn't thought about that. That makes perfect sense that, that not only will they uh, sort of, do what FedEx and, and UPS does for them already, but once they have that in place, then they can, they can offer the same services. So I, I see, I see. Um, Absolutely. So one one chapter that um, I found interesting was uh, talking about uh, Amazon likes people to have a bias for action, that they encourage you to make um, educated sort of uh, risk or, or bets on things. Um mm-hmm. So talk about that a little bit, and then I, I want to ask you about one specific example. Sure. So um, I think the bias for action is just having the the wisdom and the common sense that, you know, we are going to be well-informed, but we're not going to allow ourselves to have, you know, paralysis by analysis, and that it's better to move forward in a um, – relatively well-informed position than to try to always wait for perfect information because by doing something, that's actually how you're going to get feedback from the customer and from the market. And so, um, you know, the bias is if is to know, like, when am I well enough informed to move forward and not, stu- not study or admire the problem anymore? Okay, actually, one other chapter then about um, being vocally self-critical. Yeah, so um, that is a principle about um, helping leaders stay humble and that by always looking at yourself and your teams first as like, well, what did we do and do wrong in this situation? Where did we fail? That that always allows others to do the same and make it easier to be able to hold each other um self uh, hold each other accountable and so the notion is always always be more self-critical of yourself and that really gives you the permission to then pursue improvements in areas that maybe don't belong to you okay so the specific example uh coming after those two items is um amazon's probably most famous recent um i guess you the only you have to say failure is is was the fire phone so, again, with the caveat that obviously you haven't been there for several years, but based on some of the points in the book and based on your experience, how do you feel internally 
Microsoft as an, an organization, the, the team that worked on the Fire Phone, how does, uh, I, if I said Microsoft, I'm sorry, how does Amazon um, deal with something like a, a huge failure like the Fire Phone? Well, you know, Jeff Bezos was deeply involved um, in that project. I've read a couple of recounts of how that uh, happened and so all secondhand, but he was really kind of the chief product officer uh, for that and everything. And so um, the only thing I could kind of say is, you know, Bezos is on record as saying like, you know, I would expect more big failures, you know, like that. And I think Amazon's really trying to create an environment where they make bets and they realize that a substantial percentage of those business bets are going to uh, fail. They try to make them as low cost and as low impact as possible, but um, you know, they're going to continue to, to make make big bets like that. One, one more uh, great point from the book, um, and then we'll begin to wrap up here. Um, it was this idea of the future press release that Amazon uses, and as a concept, as like a management concept, I found that fascinating. So uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so the future press release is a tool that you um, develop early in a project to help communicate the vision for that for that project and put in some minor but exacting explicit statements about that what that is to force the right outcomes. And so um, it's it's a press release style, but you know. So the recipe kind of for it is that you write it not for the time of launch, but for some time after launch. So a year or so after the launch of the new service or new capability, you start off by describing, you know, what delighted my customers about this capability, and try to describe the great customer experience that would come out of it. And then you would try to outline what were some of the big issues and inventions and things that you had to solve for in order to achieve this success. And you wouldn't outline like how you solve for those things because that work isn't done yet. You would just start getting in paper like, hey, here's the work in front of us. And then you would give that press release to an individual who could use that press release to drive the right actions and, and the right deliverables um, across the organization, regardless of kind of organizational structure. And so it's really a tool that allows them to delegate accountability for an important program to somebody and lets them drive change across the organization, hoping to avoid kind of bureaucracy and, and kind of inner team politics. Uh, a few more questions um, to wrap up with that are sort of big picture. Um, when I, you know, I'm I'm looking as a researcher to try to figure out how how Amazon thinks, and I assumed going into it that okay, um, clearly they had to been had to have been influenced by Walmart's example, you know, being the the greatest retail success story of all time. But surprisingly, at least in what I've been able to find, there's not there has there don't seem to be a lot of parallels like okay we're going to replicate what walmart did here or what walmart did there i'm curious again based on your experience obviously early on they hired some people over from walmart but how much does amazon think about um what walmart created um as as it's creating this this new retail world well, I think in a lot of ways, Amazon was trying to, you know, early on, especially be the anti-Walmart and avoid a lot of that, you know, store infrastructure and capital expenses that were required for traditional retail. And so they were going kind of the, the opposite way of the big, big footprint um, 
retail model. I think they admired Walmart for especially the supply chain um, expertise that Walmart had. And so I think that they looked to them and they hired some talent, as you alluded to, to help them build their supply chain capabilities that Walmart was so famous for. Um, Another thing that, again, this is my bias going into the research, is I I assume that um, I I couldn't believe that selling everything was really Jeff's idea from day one. But nothing nothing that I've been able to uncover uh, has been able to prove that. So essentially, based on your experience, do you feel like that's always been it from day one? Um, Jeff Bezos has believed that he can be the retailer for literally everything. I would say not only that, but Jeff, I think, has always seen beyond retail. And he always saw Amazon as a technology company first, and retail was just kind of the first manifestation and the first business model built around that technology. And so I think I think he's always um, had a very big vision about being able to sell everything and that the catalog was an asset itself. And whether you sold it directly or not, that that was valuable data and a valuable asset to have and that Amazon was first and foremost a technology company. Okay, so I was going to end with this one, but let, let me have the next question be... Um, so when we think of like Microsoft, um, the one big idea was, you know... Microsoft software on every computer and and software is the bottleneck. When we think of Google, we think of organize the world's information. Facebook is connect all the the world's people into a virtual graph. Uh, What would you say is Amazon's one big idea as a company? You know, I don't know if they have one big one. They've had so many instrumental ones, though. For example, I mean, one of the, the business innovations that people don't recognize that came from Amazon was the ability to sell a used item right next to a brand new one, right? Like that was an early, but a game changing capability that nobody had ever done before. Like I've got a new book and I can see the used book price for that right next to it. And so I think Amazon is much more of this 10,000 really good mid-sized ideas. And, you know, Jeff, and I think it's his 2014 shareholders letter talks about, you know, he has three magical businesses and they're trying to build more and the, and the magical businesses. One was marketplace, one's AWS and one is FBA. I think those are the three. Um, and, and so, you know, it's such a conglomerate business today that I don't think it's one big idea. Okay, so final question. Maybe the big idea is they have always said, we are going to be the, mo- the world's most customer-centric company ever. And I think that they've, they've held to that, and they continue to, to espouse that. And so I think that they, their customer obsession is perhaps the big idea from Amazon. Right, and that was literally the, the, the very first part of your book. Um, right, right. So the uh, final question would be, um, describe for me Jeff Bezos as a leader and, and describe him as you would from, from a management consulting perspective, but also on, from a personal level, what was he like to work under as a person? Well, I didn't report directly to Jeff, but uh, especially for the first couple of years when we were running and launching the merchants at, which was the, the biggest bet we had going to the Amazon, you know, we had weekly update meetings, um, you know, together and everything. And I'm sure that, He's evolved, you know, over time and everything. But 
I mean, he has, like I think so many of these great um, leaders has, the ability to take in, you know, hundreds of little different data points and anecdotes and plans and to see the one needle in the haystack that is either kind of like the golden idea between all of these or the discrepancy and how on earth does it get to me with this type of discrepancy and everything. And so, you know, amazingly in tune with details and really likes to read plans. He doesn't like so much to hear plans, but he likes to be forced teams and leaders to write out what your plan is. And he deeply reads and digests those. And then the conversation starts. And so I think that was one of his real leadership tactics was forcing this notion of narratives and we are going to write plans out and we are going to read them as a senior team. And they, they spend an unbelievable amount of time doing that. Well, um, the book is the Amazon way 14 leadership lessons behind the world's most disruptive company. Uh, it's by John Rossman. You can buy it. Guess where Amazon. <laughs> um, I have, I'll have a link to it in, in the show notes for this episode. Um, if you're fascinated like I am about trying to understand Amazon, as the company, uh, this is a fantastic book. John Rossman, thanks for coming on the podcast and, and helping us try to understand Amazon. Thanks for letting me contribute. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes. Because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at NetHistoryPod, and my personal Twitter is at BrianMCC. Thanks for listening.